In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. This summer, we're working our way through Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, which, if you've been paying attention to the previous sermons from Father Andrew and from Deacon Mary, you'll know is actually the fourth letter, but out of the two, we still have to us the second letter by our reckoning. Um, And we're finding ourselves today in the middle of the letter, and Paul is speaking about hope and hardship. Now, some of the hardship that Paul is talking about here is his own grief at being maligned, harshly judged, and even deemed to be insane by those within this particular church, which he was called to serve. It isn't difficult to see the personal toll that it has taken on Paul, who still endeavors to graciously reach out and explain and to shepherd this flock. And Paul doesn't leave us in suspense as to why he is doing this. He starts off our reading today with these exact words. For the love of Christ urges us on. Verse 14. The love of Christ. This transformative love is the driving force of Paul's life and his ministry. Christ's sacrificial love, as seen for us on the cross, has opened a new path forward for all people. A new way to live. Already this love has enabled Paul to continue to serve those who have wounded him. And this will be the basis on which he calls them to a deeper understanding of how to live this cruciform life. Now, this new path is nothing short of an entire new way of living. Verses 16 and 17, Paul puts it this way. From now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ... There is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. So what does it mean to be a new creation? What does it mean to be a human, but to no longer see things from a human point of view? Well, simply put, to be a new creation is to be something, to be someone who is reborn, remade. Through Christ's offering of himself on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, we too have the opportunity to die to our former selves and to be reborn, justified and redeemed as a beloved daughter or son of God. And that's a lot to pack into just one or two verses here, especially when the reality of that statement is unpacked in a lifetime here on earth. But it's the point that Paul is making. And this is where it gets interesting and a bit complicated because this new life requires something entirely different from us. We have to learn to see one another in a wholly new and a foreign way. We are called to see one another as God sees us. When a new world is born, a new way of living goes with it, says N.T. Wright. Much easier said than done. You see, it takes some doing to unlearn something, much like it requires a lot of um, time, effort, energy, diligence to change a habit, to break a habit. This undoing, this unlearning is a labor-intensive and sometimes incredibly difficult to do. Now, if I just left us here and sent us all out with, well, there's your sermon, go do it. 
it wouldn't feel possible. It would feel remarkably frustrating. What, what could we possibly hope to do with that? It doesn't feel realistic. But this is where we can have hope. We already have become someone new in Christ. Think of what I have just read to you and what you've already heard. Everything old has passed away. Everything has become new. Past tense. It's been done. Now at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came to the first believers to dwell within them, to tutor them, to encourage them, and empower them to live brand new lives in Christ and to share that good news with the whole world. This should be a reminder, right? We still live in that reality. That hasn't changed. So we too are indwelled by the Spirit of God who equips us to embrace new life and live in the way that Jesus modeled for us during his physical life on earth which surpasses all of our human limitations and all of our brokenness. And that's a stunning thought to consider. Imagining ourselves to be someone entirely new, someone unbroken. That's breathtaking, really. But this week, as I was pondering that idea, I had another less appealing set of questions that bubbled up in my heart. What if I liked who I was? What if I liked what I had? Do I really need to let that go? What I heard after much prayer and wrestling and careful listening was this. Yes. Yes. The chance of a new life requires us to surrender all that we have and all that we are, or all that we were, in order to receive what we will acquire and who we were made to be. And that's a big buy-in. The posture of surrender, it doesn't necessitate that God's going to strip everything out of our hands and leave us with nothing. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to so drastically change us into something or someone else that we won't recognize who we are. But it does mean that we don't get to choose what stays and what goes. We turn over that authority to God. It's crazy, right? Completely letting go, that feels unbelievably risky. For those of us who are planners or maybe even self-proclaimed control freaks, it can be terrifying. The choice to surrender your control to someone else when you're used to holding on to whatever autonomy and agency you have, it, it feels like a reckless choice to flirt with disaster. After all, we generally work hard to make ends meet, to pursue our goals, to improve ourselves, We've all also heard the dangers preached from pulpits about unintentional backsliding if you're not working towards something. Yet surrender to God is unlike surrender to anyone else. Far from being this baffling descent into madness is actually choosing the best way to live. Take it from Mary, who perfectly models for us in her enunciation, let it be unto me and she accepts a radically different future for herself than anything she was envisioning because God wanted it so. 
It requires a tremendous amount of trust in the goodness of God and the trustworthiness of his plans to even begin to contemplate such a step. Yet it is precisely this that Paul believes the church is called to undertake in order to become God's witness to this world. We are called to place our trust in God who has made all things new, as you've heard, and in verse 19, who reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled to God? What is the ministry of reconciliation? Let's start with the first one. To be reconciled to God means to be able to draw near to him and to enter in this fullest and realest understanding of what life is. To be reconciled to God is to be in communion with God, with no barriers in the way, forever joined in mutual love and joy together. Of course, this is possible because, Jesus, because of Jesus' redemptive work on the cross. It's already been accomplished. We've already agreed on that. But it does require a willingness for us to want to be with God, to be in a relationship with God. Henry Nouwen, in his book entitled With Burning Hearts, A Meditation on the Eucharistic Life, speaks on this type of relational reality this way. In and through Jesus, God wants not only to teach us, instruct us, or inspire us, but to become one with us. God desires to be fully united in us so that all of God and all of us can be bound together in a lasting love. The whole history of God's relationship with us human beings is the history of an ever-deepening communion. It's not simply a history of unities, separations, and restored unities but a history in which God searches for ever new ways to commune intimately with those created in his own image. God desires communion. God desires communion. A unity that is vital and alive, an intimacy that comes from both sides, a bond that is truly mutual. Nothing is forced or willed, but a communion freely offered and received. And God goes all the way to make this communion possible. This is exactly why Paul describes our ability to be reconciled to Christ as being nothing less than a gift from God in Romans 5.11. But more than that, we even boast in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a gift a precious gift beyond measure to be able to be united to our creator. The impossible has been made possible in Christ. And once we embrace this new reality, of course it's appropriate and right for this new way of living to be able to utterly change a lot of things. It changes how we view ourselves. It changes how we view God. Maybe it even changes how we view one another. The Apostle John says that we love because he first loved us, but he could have also just as easily said we forgive because he first forgave us. This is what Paul means by the ministry of reconciliation. All the barriers we have set up between us, all the wrongs, 
all the hurts, all the judgments, and all the brokenness that come with being a fallen human in a fallen world, living with other fallen humans, all of that has to come down. We are called to live lives not only reconciled to God, but reconciled to one another. How? But how can we do this? How can we get beyond ourselves to repair the wounds we've caused, the wrongs we've done, or to forgive the things that have truly harmed? The old version of ourselves had no chance at accomplishing such lofty goals. But think of the words of Jesus. Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We have been made new. And nothing now is impossible with God. Nothing. The reality of reconciliation with God is completely accomplished at the cross. The reality of reconciliation with one another, however, can be the work of a lifetime. But it is possible. And it's exactly what we are called to strive for as ambassadors of Christ in this world. Now it encourages us this way by saying this, communion with God creates community with one another. We have an opportunity each week to come together and worship and draw near, not just to God, but to one another. In the Holy Feast of the Eucharist, we gather together and we kneel at the table. That is the great equalizer. Where all are known, all are loved, and all are fed by their Father in heaven who gave everything so that we could be fully loved and love again. In God's mercy, we are forgiven, we are fed, and we are sent back out to get back at it, to be ambassadors in a broken world, to work towards rebuilding and repairing relationships that we've broken, and to help right the wrongs that are plaguing this world. This is our privilege, and it's our new birthright as heirs to the kingdom of God. But it is hard, and it is daunting work. The work of reconciliation is by necessity a slow burn, work that is too important and too messy to accomplish quickly. Reconciliation with one another is nothing short of the work of rehabilitating and restoring souls in relationship. I have been at work in this vocation going on about four years formally, and some of what I've learned is that it is impossible and downright foolish to try to drive people, to push ourselves even, towards repairing things that we are not yet ready to mend. You cannot rush these things without the results being much less successful than you hoped for. And more often than not, if you keep pushing, you will find yourself dealing with something on top of your already existing wound, like bitterness, anger, resentment, cynicism, or despair. That will come in and take root like an infection on top of an already open wound. Reconciliation work is work that cannot happen out of our own strength, but it can happen with God's help. It is not without reason that Stephen Ministry talks about God as being a cure giver, in fact, the only cure giver in our lives. Now I wanna pause here and speak to those of us who are hurting, who are carrying wounds that are painful and heavy to bear, 
who find that your best efforts and perhaps even your desires to be made whole have not yet been answered. Maybe even hearing me particularly preach words of reconciliation when you know that I am not perfect and perhaps I have wronged you. Maybe that alone is painful. If that is the case, I would try to encourage you and to say take heart and be gentle with yourself. You are still, always have been, and always will be the beloved of God. He delights in each of you. And the best thing we can do when we find ourselves stuck like this is to cry out to God for help. Because he will find you. He is the good shepherd after all. It's kind of his business. And when he does, take care to surrender yourself entirely to his tender care as he addresses your wounds and even softens your heart. Obedience here looks like consenting to the great physician's care and trusting that his care plan, while it might not make sense to you, is the best care plan and the best course of action for your life. And once you are well, know that you will be called to get back up again and begin the hard work of repentance and forgiveness and the mending of relationships that have suffered simply because time witnessing God's healing work in our own lives will change us. It will. We will not be the same. We can trust that his mercy will overflow and become our mercy. His love for us will become our love for one another. And we will become more like the people that we were made to be. That's just how it works. And when we embrace our new selves, a new communion with one another is sure to follow. Now and again gives us a quick look about what this true community will be like. This new body is a spiritual body fashioned by the spirit of love. It manifests itself in very concrete ways, in forgiveness, reconciliation, mutual support, outreach to people in need, solidarity with all who suffer, and an ever-increasing concern for justice and peace. This was Paul's hope for the church in Corinth, to be able to see beyond the brokenness that they were themselves and to become this new community. And it has always been the hope of God for his people on earth. Remember the words of Jesus in his high priestly prayer as he says this, and I encourage you to listen to it with all the talk about oneness. Listen. I ask not only on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become completely one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved me. Go back further and think of the words of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This call to holy unity, this call to holy communion with God and with one another is none other than a gospel imperative. It is what it means to live a new life as a Christian. And it's what we have to lean towards and work towards, and at least if we're not there, place ourselves in God's tender care 
and say, that's where we want to be. Please help. May we learn to surrender and embrace fully the God of grace as we seek healing in our rawest places and look forward with anticipation to the time when we with clear hearts can all declare the good news together and say, behold, he has made all things new. Amen.